0: All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Calvary. If you're new, that's good to see you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26? We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, and as we entered into chapter 26, we entered into the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. Now, we've been studying the chapter for a couple weeks, and this morning, we want to pick it up in verse 14 of Matthew 26. Matthew 26, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. You know, for centuries Christians have debated the reason for Judas' betrayal of Jesus. I mean, what would cause one of Jesus' closest friends, a man chosen by him to be an apostle, someone who walked with the Lord for three and a half years, watching him minister to hurting people, watching him heal the sick and work miracles and and teach the truths of God on a daily basis? I mean, what would cause Judas to turn on Jesus like this and plot to betray him to the leaders of Israel who hated Jesus and wanted to see him crucified? And the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. All I can do is share with you some suggestions posed by others, One might be found in his very name, Judas Iscariot. Actually, his name is Judas. His title is Iscariot, which literally means man of Kerioth. Kerioth was a town in Judea. Judea was the area that Jerusalem was located in. It was a sophisticated big city area. Of course, most of the disciples were Galilean. And Galilee was Hicksville, okay? Not to offend anybody from a small town, but Galilee was backwoods stuff. And, you know, Jesus had chosen among the 12 a little inner circle of disciples, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And he often took these four men with him uh, when the others were asked to stay in a certain location. And it could be that Judas just got tired of playing second fiddle to a bunch of hicks, basically. He figured he was the sophisticated one, the big city guy. So, you know, maybe he got disillusioned that way. I don't know. Some believe that Judas was disillusioned in the fact that Jesus was not the Messiah he wanted him to be. Uh, Judas wanted maybe a more political uh, Messiah, a more military-minded Messiah uh, that would lead them in a revolt against Rome and overthrow the Roman government. Now, most of Jesus' disciples were hoping that's what Jesus would do at one point. But it could be that Judas, you know was tired of hearing all this talk about loving your enemies, he wanted to start fighting the enemy. We don't know. Some believe that Judas, as he watched the ongoing conflict between Jesus and the leaders of Israel, was starting to see that the leadership of Israel was winning and Jesus was losing. Therefore, maybe he decided to cut his losses and join the winning side. You know, turn on Jesus and become, you know, setting himself up for the future. By getting good with these religious leaders... Maybe there's a place for me in their administration, I don't know. And finally, the one I kind of lean toward, although I don't know really which is right, but the one I kind of lean toward is that Judas did believe that Jesus was going to lead the disciples in a revolt against Rome at one point. Remember now, all the way back in the Old Testament, we read how Messiah was going to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that would never end. And it could be that Judas, and no doubt the others, but Judas is the only one who tried to act on it, that Judas felt, look, let's get this show on the road, man. Let's get going here. All right? Why is he stalling? Why is he dragging his feet with this? When are we going to go to war against Rome? And Judas might have figured, look, if I betray him to the chief priests and the leaders and they come to arrest him, maybe that will be his cue to get going here. And he'll call us to arms and we'll get this thing going. The revolution. I don't know. Whatever the specific reason, the words of Judas stand, and I think will haunt Judas himself for all eternity. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? We know one thing for sure. This was prophesied five centuries earlier through the prophet Zechariah, and these events did not take the Lord Jesus by surprise, as we're going to see next week. But in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, we read, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price that they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now that was written five centuries before this event in Matthew 26. And we know later that Judas returned to the chief priests And wanted to give the money back to them. He said, look, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they basically said, too bad. What's that to us? It's your problem. And so Judas threw the money down on the floor of the temple, went out and hung himself. And the chief priest said, look, what are we going to do with this money? We can't put it back in the temple treasury. I mean, it's blood money. We use it to buy information that led to the death of this man, Jesus. We can't put it back in the treasury. I know what we'll do. We'll take it and buy a potter's field to bury the poor in." just as the prophecy in Zechariah had prophesied. A potter's field, guys, was a piece of ground next to the potter's house. And it was out onto this field that the potter would toss all the pottery that didn't survive the firing process, that broke or cracked while it was being fired, so the potter would take it and throw it out into the field next to his house. Well, these fields would eventually become so filled with little pieces of broken pottery that they became unusable for farming, and practically worthless. They therefore became a cheap way to acquire land to bury the poor in. And thus the phrase potter's field became a term for a graveyard. But as we've already said, Judas has to be one of the most tragic figures in history. I mean, think of the privilege he enjoyed to be chosen by Jesus, (laughs) handpicked by Jesus to be one of his closest friends, an apostle, one who would basically follow the Lord by his side for three and a half years, day and night, you know, uh, just constantly, 24-7, soaking in his presence, uh, soaking in his love, his wisdom. I mean, how could a guy like Judas, who was so close to Jesus for all that time, wind up going to hell? Seems inconceivable. But I think author James Montgomery Boy said it well when he said, and I quote, how could Judas have missed learning what was truly valuable and giving up everything for it. He said, I don't know. But I know that millions are doing just that today. Let me remind you that it is possible to be quite close to Jesus Christ, to sit in a Christian church listening to good sermons, to hear good Bible teaching on radio or television, to have Christian parents or Christian friends who live consistent and effective Christian lives and bear strong testimonies to the gospel of God's grace, and yet failed to fall in love with Christ, and never reached the point of making a personal commitment to him as one's Lord and Savior. You can be that close to Jesus Christ and yet be lost. It would be a tragedy for that to be true in your case. But it is not necessary, especially if you have understood who Jesus is and what he came to do on the earth. Like Mary, and then he talks about Mary who anointed Jesus' feet his head for burial. We studied that at the beginning of chapter 26. Of course, Mary so valued Jesus Christ that she was willing to give what was most precious to her, her dowry, this uh, alabaster flask of fragrant oil worth almost a year's wage. She poured it all out on Jesus because she loved and valued him so much. In contrast, we see Judas, who loved himself more than anybody else, who didn't value the Lord because the Lord wasn't doing for Judas what Judas wanted him to do. And so Judas valued Jesus a very little. And Boyce said, like Mary, you need to look deeply into his eyes and learn to love him as the one who loves you and gave himself for your salvation, end quote. It's just really troubling to me as a pastor to know how many people have gone to church almost all their lives but have never really made a commitment to Christ. We see them standing before the Lord, Matthew 7, where they say to him, Lord, Lord, haven't we served you? Haven't we gone to church? Haven't we even cast out demons in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's as Bunyan said, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he noted in his book, there is an an entrance to hell even from the gates of heaven. In other words, there are many people who go to church and are standing at the very gates of heaven. They hear the word, they see God working among others, yet they have never made a commitment to Christ, and so they will wind up spending eternity like Judas, separated from him. It's a tragedy that doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. We must be honest with ourselves. We must examine ourselves, as the Bible says, to make sure that we're really in the faith. So in verse 17 we read, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, verse 17 skips over to Wednesday, which was really the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you have to understand something. You have two separate feasts, the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes though the Jews just combined them both together and said Passover. Or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see this in Luke 22, verse 1, where it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. But you understand they're two separate feasts, even though they were often combined under one heading. The Passover. Let's look at this for a moment. We see God saying in Leviticus 23, verses 4 and 5, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Passover began at sundown on the 14th of Nisan and continued until sundown the following day, at which time the Feast of Unleavened Bread began and ran for seven consecutive days. Together they made an eight-day feast. Nisan corresponds to mid-March through mid-April on our calendar. And just so you realize, Passover takes place on the first full moon of spring. The Jews were on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So the first full moon of spring marked the Passover. Now, we talked about the Passover a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to get into it heavy again, but let me just say this. If we could sum up Passover in one word, it would have to be the word redemption. Redemption. It is the feast of redemption celebrating and commemorating how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. You know, Jesus in his earthly life not only observed the Passover, listen, he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. You remember when John the Baptist introduced Jesus? Remember in John 1? He said to his disciples, because John had disciples, and he saw Jesus coming towards them, he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the of the world. And then Paul the Apostle would write in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, many years later, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You see, guys, Passover was a foreshadowing of Jesus shedding his blood for us as the Lamb of God to redeem us out of the bondage of sin and death to set us free to God. The word redeem literally means to purchase and set free by paying a price. We were purchased and set free. Now, Peter tells us, not with things like gold, silver, precious stones, but we were set free, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Without blemish, he was born sinless. Without spot, he never sinned during his earthly life. He was a perfect sacrifice. Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we heard the word redemption, maybe some Christians understand what that means, maybe some don't. It's not a term that we use a lot in our culture today. But Paul's readers coming from that first century Greco-Roman world knew, would have known exactly what redemption was all about. You see, they tell us that back in Paul's day, there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, and most of them were bought and sold like pieces of furniture. In fact, every Greek town had a marketplace in the center of town known as the Agora, the Agura. and specifically, although not exclusively, this was the place that slaves were bought and sold, and they had several words for redemption in the Greek that talked about this. One of the Greek words for the act of redemption is agarazzo. And it comes from the Greek word agora. But agarazzo is not the word that Paul used in Colossians 1.14 when he said, we have been redeemed to the blood of Jesus Christ. That wasn't the word he used. The second Greek word for redemption is the word ex-agarazzo. And it means the act of purchasing or redeeming never to return. And the idea was that there were men who would go down to the marketplace and they would buy a slave to come bring him back to help with the harvest. Because, you know, during the harvest you need a lot of hands working to bring the harvest in. You only had a short amount of time. After the harvest was done, they would bring the slave back to the marketplace and sell him again because he didn't need him anymore. ex was a term that was used of a, a master who went down to the market, bought a slave, brought him home, and kept that slave for the rest of his life. But that wasn't the word Paul used in Colossians 1.14. See, the Greeks had a third word for redemption, Apollotrosis. And Apollotrosis speaks of a man going into the agora to purchase a slave for the purpose, listen, of setting him free totally and completely, never to be a slave again. And that is the word Paul used in this verse. That yeah, Jesus Christ, when he redeemed us, With his blood, he set us free. Never again will we be in bondage to the world or the flesh or the prince of this world, Satan, as we once were before we were set free through the blood of Christ. We have been made free. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free what? Indeed. But you know what we do now? After the Lord has set us free, we turn around and we offer ourselves to him as bond slaves. A bond slave was a voluntary slave. Somebody was a free man, but placed himself into slavery voluntarily to another man. You say, I don't see how that works. Look, in Israel, if you owed a debt and you couldn't pay it, you could sell yourself into slavery for a period of time to work the debt off. But at the if at the end of that time, now you, fit, you worked your debt off, maybe a year or two years or whatever, And now you've worked the debt off, and of course then the master would set you free. But if this man had been such a good master, and many of them were, by the way, they were not all tyrants. Some of these masters were very kind men. He gave me a a nice place to live, good food to eat. He was kind to me. And you know what? I don't want to leave his service. I want to remain his slave forever. They had a word for it. It was called a bond slave. And what they would do is they would go then to the master and say, look, I love you. You're a good man. I want to stay in your service for the rest of my life. The master would then take the slave to the doorpost of his house, take a very sharp instrument like an awl, and he would drive the awl through his ear and pin it to the doorpost of the house. Symbolically, the idea was you were pinning him now to the house for the rest of his life. Of course, you took it out and wasn't going to hang out in the door there, but, you know. (laughs) And then what they would do is they would put a gold earring in that slave's ear. And every time that slave went into public and people looked at that gold earring, they knew what had happened. And You know what they would say? What an incredible master he must have. To willingly put yourself into slavery to a man, that has to be some master. And so the church picked up on that and said, you know, Christ has set us free, but I'm a bondslave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondslave of Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Christ. Peter, a bondslave of... They all used that term because they all saw themselves as those who had now voluntarily placed themselves under the control of a master that nobody could equal, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a little glimpse of Passover. How about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Now, as I said earlier, Passover began at sundown on the 14th of Nisan, and continued until sundown the following day, at which time the Feast of Unleavened Bread began and ran for seven consecutive days. You can read about this in Leviticus 23, verses 6 to 8. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, what was leaven? Well, leaven was dough that had yeast introduced into it and had been given time to ferment. And every morning, the women would mix up a batch of dough to make bread for the day. And they would always mix into it a piece of leaven, starter piece. They would mix into it, and then they would put the dough aside and let the leaven permeate the entire lump of dough. And when it was all fermented, they would then bake it for bread, but they would take one little piece, put it in a cloth, save it for the next day's dough. Well, that became an apt illustration of sin, because leaven was the process of putrefaction. We talk about sour dough bread, right? It's bread that's been fermented. And so that became a symbol for sin in the scriptures. Paul even said that a little little leaven would permeate an entire lump of dough until all was leavened, just like sin. If not dealt with, it will spread through a whole church until everything has been corrupted. Now, with regard to Jesus, how does this feast deal with him? How does it speak of him? Well, the the unleavened bread is a symbol of his body, a symbol of him personally, who was sinless. He was without leaven. In fact, he spoke of himself as the bread of life, right? He was born in Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. He was our Passover lamb, but he was our Passover lamb because he was the unleavened bread of life. He had no sin. Several years ago, we uh, had um, a Jewish believer named Zola Levitt at the church who spoke. He's with the Lord now, but he wrote something along the lines of Passover from a Jewish perspective, talking about the unleavened bread, and I'd like to read it to you. He said, the very piece of bread used by the Jews during this week of unleavened bread is a good picture of our Lord. Anyone who has seen the Jewish matzo sees that it is striped. Then he quotes the scripture, by his stripes we are healed. It is pierced. Then he quotes the scripture, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And of course it was pure, without any leaven, as his body was without any sin. The Passover ceremony of breaking and burying and then resurrecting a piece of this bread, the middle piece, I believe it's called the afikomen. In the Jewish Passover, uh, there's three pieces of matzah that they will use and at one point they slide out the middle piece and they wrap it up and they hide it remember that we've had the Passover seders here then at the end of the feast they bring it back they do it because of tradition they don't know why they do it but we do it (laughs) well Zola Levitt being a Jewish believer and of course you know we understand this now says They don't know why they hide the middle piece, but the middle piece represents the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who was pierced and then hidden, who is coming back again to be revealed and establish a kingdom. But what is the significance? I'm sorry, let me finish with my quote from Zola. Um, He talks about the middle piece being um, removed and hidden, representing the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, Very obviously, he said, this presents the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in the midst of the modern Jewish Passover celebration, All right, well, what is the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to those of us who are Christians? Listen, if Passover speaks of redemption, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of sanctification. Sanctification. The word sanctification means to be set apart from the world to live a life of holiness and service to God. Now, you have to understand something, okay? It, it was a word that didn't just apply to people. It could apply to objects. What do I mean? Well, in the temple, they had certain utensils, bowls, pitchers, knives, forks that were used in the sacrifices to God. They were only used for one purpose, the worship of God. In that regard, they were holy. That's, we get the word holy from that word, tagias in the Greek, holy, sanctified, same idea. And so objects that were used in the temple and only used for the worship of God were called holy or sanctified. And in the same way, we are the instruments of the living God. We are to present our bodies as living instruments, right? And sacrifices. And as such, we are to be holy to God. We are to be set apart, to be used exclusively by Him for His glory. So sanctification means to be set apart from the world to live a life of holiness and service to God. And again, you have to understand the cultural background. The children of Israel at one time were enslaved down in Egypt. We know that. And eventually through Moses and the blood of the Passover lamb, God brought them out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea to Sinai. And the first thing God said to them, listen, the first thing he said to Israel after he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt was, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Let me paraphrase. Look. (laughs) How you lived your lives when you were slaves in Egypt, Egypt represents the world, is one thing. But I've redeemed you out of that system. You belong to me now. And as such, I want you to begin to live a new life. What kind of a life, Lord? An unleavened life, a holy life. See, once a person has been redeemed by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, they have been redeemed out of the world system of which Egypt is a type. And God says to us is, I am holy. I want you to be holy as well. Let me paraphrase. How you lived your lives when you were a slave to Satan living in the world is one thing. But I have redeemed you out of the world system. You are no longer a member of that system. You belong to me now. And I expect you to to begin to live a new kind of life for me. What kind of life, Lord? An unleavened life, a holy life. As we have said before, It's okay for a ship to be in the sea, but watch out when the sea gets into the ship. And it's okay for a Christian to be in the world, but watch out when the world gets into the Christian. That was the problem with Israel, by the way. God physically brought them out of Egypt. For God, that was nothing. You know what he really had a hard time doing? Getting Egypt out of them. Because they kept wanting to go back, right? The same is true with so many Christians. You know, salvation is the miracle of a moment nothing for God to take you out of the world and save you. He spends most of his time, after that point, trying to get the world out of us. And with some Christians, it doesn't work so well. They want to have the world and God. But as Joshua said, you got to choose this day whom you're going to serve. And as Jesus put it, you can't serve two masters. So either you've got to serve God or the world, but you can't serve God and the world. Now, we see this In the church today, and even back in Paul's day, because Paul addressed the church, the church of Corinth, who basically had that mentality. They were a carnal church. They loved the Lord, and God had given them all the gifts of the Spirit, so they were not, they were a saved church, yet they were still a very carnal church. I think in some ways they wanted to have the Lord in the world. And so Paul writes them, in fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, Paul picks up on this lump and leaven illustration, but you know what it is now? He said in verse 6, your glorying is not good, because they they thought themselves so spiritual. And here they are, they were carnal, very carnal. It's amazing how carnal Christians can think themselves very spiritual. He said, do you not know that a little leaven, and I'll paraphrase, a little sin can corrupt the whole body, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, (laughs) since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, Paul is saying, look, you've experienced Passover. (laughs) You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Now it's time to start enjoying the Feast of Unleavened Bread, entering into that feast, which means, you know, a holy life, a holy life. You know, back in the Jewish culture, and even today, uh, in those homes that are Orthodox and celebrate Passover and Unleavened Bread, from what I understand, the Jewish women will go through at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and sprinkle some leaven, cookie crumbs or Twinkies, I don't know, around the house, and then she'll go through and, and sweep them all up into a pile because it was the man who's supposed to purge the house of leaven. But, you know, he didn't want to do all the, the hard work. So the, the wife actually, you know, gathered all the leaven together in a little pile, you know, all the stuff in the cupboards got tossed out. But, but anything on the floors, you know, swept up. And then the man of the house would come home. He would take a little dustpan and a feather and just brush the remaining leaven into the dustpan where it was taken out and was burned. And he would declare the house now purged of all leaven. Of course, they do it because of tradition, once again, not because they understand the implication. The implication is you have just observed Passover, which speaks of redemption. And now you are to live a new life, a sanctified, unleavened life. And how long was this feast for, feast of unleavened bread? How many days? Seven. What is seven the number of in Scripture? completeness so this was to be a a completely unleavened life that's just a little unleavened you know i stay away from most of the big sins god can't expect me to be perfect well in christ he expects you to through the power of the spirit seek to make perfection your goal you won't reach it but at least you're trying to be all that jesus is and something else that's very important that we need to understand There was no gap of time between these two feasts. Passover, which spoke of redemption, took place on the 14th of Nisan, and starting immediately on the next day began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which spoke of sanctification. I think the spiritual lesson the Lord was wanting to teach His people and all of us is pretty clear in that He had these two feasts back up uh, to each other without any gap of time. What He was doing was, He was saying that, look, once you get saved as a Christian, once you've experienced Passover... Well, then you are to immediately begin to live a new life, an unleavened life, a holy life. There's no gap of time there. There's no, I'll accept Jesus Jesus today and maybe down the road a year or two I'll get serious and stop living with my boyfriend or girlfriend and get, get my life right with God. No. Once you get saved, once you apply the blood of Christ to your life by faith, you've just observed Passover. And now you are to begin to live a new life immediately, an unleavened, holy life. Look, it's what the theologians call progressive sanctification. Every day as you walk with Jesus, you become more and more like him. That's what it's all about. But it should be a progressive thing, starting immediately after you're saved and continuing the rest of your life. Look, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, The first eight chapters of the most important book ever written, listen, were a commentary on these two feasts. Romans chapters 1 through 5, Paul is dealing with the Passover. In essence, he is telling us how a person gets saved. And it's not by the works of the law. It's through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, which is applied to our lives by faith. So the first five chapters of Romans really is a commentary on the feast of Passover. And then Romans 6, 7, and 8 He begins writing a commentary on the Feast of Unleavened Bread by telling us, now that we are saved, how we are to live. He begins chapter 6 by saying this, What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin? And now that we're saved, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? In other words, Christ has redeemed us. He has set us apart for His use. We are the special treasure of god as christians he wants our lives now to be holy he wants us separated from the world to live a life that's dedicated to him all right back to matthew 26 as we wrap this up verse 17 once again now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus saying to him where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the passover And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Well, Lord, the city's a big place. What do you mean going to the city to a certain man? Okay, Uh, it's a little vague. Can you give us a little more? Well, actually, he did give them a little more because Mark and Luke record this whole thing. And in Mark's gospel, we read now, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples. Luke tells us it was Peter and John. And said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared There." make ready for us. You say, well, that sounds a little vague too. I mean, go into the city and find a man carrying a pitcher of water? Didn't a lot of guys carry pitchers of water back then? No. That was women's work, okay? Women's work. They carried the water. They went to the wells. They drew the water, okay? That was women's work back then. So to find a guy carrying a pitcher of water, either he was whooped <laughs> or he was single. Either way, he was an anomaly. He was different. Now you say, was this a miracle? Or did he have this all preset? I don't know. know. Probably he had it preset, you know. Uh, Knew this guy, knew that he served a a master that had a large upper room. And maybe Jesus, a few days before this, went and made arrangements with this guy and said, look, you'll know the, the guy who lives there because he's the only guy carrying the water. Just follow him, you know, and tell the master the... Uh, our Lord says it's time and he wants to eat the Passover in your upper room. You know, I don't think we have to ascribe a a miracle to this, but it it might have been. I don't know. All right. Now that brings us to verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And guys, the stage is now set for the most important Passover in the history of the world, as we're going to see why Next time. This was not the first Passover in Israel's history. It would be the most important Passover in all of human history, as we're going to see next time. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us so much that you sent down your sinless Son, who became a Lamb, a Lamb who died for sinners, the innocent, dying for the guilty, And we thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us. So many of us in this room have experienced our own personal Passovers. But, Lord, we ask now that you would give us grace to live a holy life, that we would enter into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day feast speaking of complete consecration, complete dedication and devotion, complete holiness and sanctification. And so, Lord, give us grace. We live in a very unholy world. And it becomes easy to look at the immorality around us and say, well, we're not as bad as them, forgetting that they're not the standard. You, Lord Jesus, are the standard. And give us grace to stand next to you and see, like Isaiah, where we say, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. I understand what holiness really is. Give us grace to keep our eyes on you, Lord, because that's how we learn what holiness and sanctification is really all about. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.